Amen. Well, I generally try to stay away from the prophetic because it can be bad for your health. But um, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't believe that Nicholas Dolchuk will be a great preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? I, uh, I've got him earmarked anyway for that. I think, I think God's going to use him uh, in a powerful, powerful way. Megan, what a great testimony. Thank you for sharing with us. What a great morning this has been. It's just a blessing to, to hear the songs of freedom, to hear what God has done in people's lives. Well, let's pause for prayer, shall we? Our Father and our God, I have one prayer, one, one request to ask of you for this hour, and that is that you would help me to show your glory to your people and to those who might not yet be your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So what do you think when you hear the term, the glory of God? I, I suspect we have a, a variety of opinions among us. In fact, we just came past the Christmas season and, and we love the, the splendor of the, the story of the angels breaking forth in the heavens and, and declaring glory to God in the highest. And, and there's a picture in our minds of this, this great light show in heaven and all of that. But, but when someone says to you, do you realize that you exist uh, to bring glory to God, that that's your purpose? Uh, do we really understand what that means? Uh, do we really understand how to do that? Uh, I think it's the terminology that's very common in the Christian community. We throw it around a lot. We talk about the glory of God. We talk about how we're to glorify God and, and all of that. But I wonder if in the practical sense, we really know what that looks like, what that really means. Do we really understand what what God's glory is. Shouldn't we know? I think as God's people, an important matter like this, absolutely. If I'm not living or glorifying God, what am I not doing? So this morning I want to really address one big question and, uh, and, and address it with some smaller questions. But the big question is this. Is your life about the glory of God or a total eclipse of the sun or somewhere in between. Now when we ask that question of you, are you all out, is your life totally about the glory of God, or is your life pretty much completely eclipsing a vision of Jesus Christ, or are you somewhere in between? Well, maybe you don't really know exactly where you are, but it certainly is one of those pause moments to say, hmm, I wonder where I am in that grid. So that's what we want to turn our attention toward today. We really want to be able to define the glory of God, what it is, what it looks like, how we practice it in our lives, so that we know what we're to do. So if you're with me, I want to take you on a really quick scriptural tour, and we're going to do it with, uh, you need your water-cooled pens to, to go through this one, or just save yourself and go online, the notes are online, you can go to the office and pick them up, whatever you prefer, but let's just, let's just dig in for a few moments, because I want to look at the first question, which is why study the glory of God? We need to have a motivation, and try to sort of instill one in you right away in the, this morning, um, as to the fact that we are called to be uh, involved in the glory of God, well, what does it mean? And I want to share with you in these first four verses, really the storyline of your election, or the storyline of your call to Christianity. And it really began in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the truth of all humanity. 
And as we look at that, all people fall short of it. We realize that there's a connection by that verse between sin and falling short of the glory of God. That's all I want to say about that as we move on. I want you to I want to build a case for the glory of God with these with a collection of scripture. I want to move on to Isaiah 43, which is a phenomenal chapter of God's word. And I know some of you are are very preoccupied reading the book of Romans. How many of you are reading, trying to read the book of Romans? I know some of you are out there doing that. And so here I am going to throw another chapter at you, but, but you got to read Isaiah 43. It's a phenomenal chapter, and it really is uh, about our salvation and our freedom from, from uh, sin. And, and in, that, in that particular verse, entrenched there, a little before it, it says, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. God is talking about his people. Uh, you are mine. You are precious. You are honored. And then he says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then he goes on, to, goes on to describe more superlatives about his relationship with us. But out of that particular verse, we can see that we were made to glorify God. In fact, we were created to glorify God. The creator of the universe lays it out for us in the text. I made you to glorify me. I made you for that purpose. We also learn in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, we're to do it all for the glory of God. In the very basics of life, it doesn't get more basic than eating or drinking. In the very basics of life, we're supposed to glorify God. So it sure matters that we know what that means, doesn't it? It matters that we know why we, are, we, should, we should study the glory of God. Our expected day-to-day -day action plan in the most basic of life's things and then finally, in this section of, the script, of, of, the, uh, of this study, I want to look at 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says, And we all, and this is referring to believers now, we all who with unveiled faces, which is a, which is a, a description back uh, of Moses when he was in the presence of God, his face glowed so brightly that they had to put a veil over it in order to talk to him for a while until the glory faded. And then the next time he went to see God, the glory in his face, the radiance in his face was there again, and they, and they had to veil his face. But now we in Christ Jesus, we, we, don't have, we have unveiled faces. We don't have to have veiled faces. We reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image. And we learned last week how that happens by the renewing of our mind through the reading and soaking and saturating and feasting ourselves on God's word. And we are transformed into his image with ever-increasing, notice this, ever-increasing glory. That's the storyline of our lives, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, so um, growing in the glory of the Lord is our transformational outcome. It's how, it's how God is changing us. So why do we study the glory of God? Well, there's a whole case to be made for why we were brought into salvation and what our salvation story is all about. I want to continue on this scriptural tour for a few moments with you and, and address another question. And that question is, what is the glory of God? Because that's really what you came this morning to find out, I suspect, if you understand what our series is all about. Uh, what is the glory of God? Well, one of the key verses is found in Isaiah 6.3 where the prophet Isaiah has a glimpse of glory of heaven himself and he, re and he hears the angels, he hears the, the, the angels uh, bantering back and forth and what they're saying and they call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of, and we would have expected them to say, his holiness. 
Doesn't it just make sense? I mean, they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We thought you would say holiness. So it would appear to us as we look at this verse that there is some sort of connection between the holiness of God and his glory. Then Moses says to Aaron in Leviticus 10.3, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron, for once, shut his mouth. That's what we read here. Because Aaron was the spokesman, if you remember, or sort of. Now, by the way, before we go any further in this, maybe we need to know or define what holy means. Because if we don't really know what holy means, we'll not really understand the connection it has to glory. Now, holy is an English word that simply tries to describe something that's almost indescribable. In fact, when we're talking about holy, we are talking about the holiness of God. We are talking about the fact that God is completely different from his creation. He is awesomely, spectacularly, reverently, brilliantly, I can't come up with enough superlatives, different from his creation. And holy is the word that we use to describe the distinctive differentness, and I'm not even sure if that's a word, but I'm using it, the differentness of God from you and me. And so the holiness, when it says here in the text that, that the holiness of God will be seen, in other words, we also learn in, in, the, in the scriptures that God is invisible. We don't see God. And so he says to, Moses says to Aaron, God is saying that my holiness will be seen. And the connection between holy, holy, holy and the glory of God is simply that the, the um, invisible differentness, spectacular magnificence, brilliance, greatness, awesomeness of God is visibly manifest by the term called glory. Now, keep, keep with me for a few months. We'll tie all this together. It says in the scriptures in Psalm 19.1, you know this text, the heavens declare the glory of God. So not only is, this, is the earth full of the glory of God, but the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies preach the works of his hands. We've used this verse a few moments ago, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. So the glory of God is, is, uh, is publicly visible in the heavens and through believers' lives. And then tragically, finally, the last text that I want to, in this tour, point out is 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, which says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of God, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So people are blindfolded to the glory by Satan. So how do we tie all this together very simply? I think that, uh, that uh, the, the way the scriptures tie it together is this way. The greatness and holiness of God, the holiness of God, the differentness of the invisible God is made visible 
through the heavens, through the earth, through his creation, through his people. So glory becomes the manifestation or the ability of us to see the holiness of God. I I would use a definition like this. The glory or the splendor of something is the visible results of its unique characteristics. So you can't really say, there's the holiness of God. There's the holiness of God. See, there's the holiness of God. Look there, there's the holiness of God. Unless you're actually looking at it through the glory of God. The glory of God is the visible manifestation. Each one of these descriptions in these four verses we just looked at has something to do with what we can see. And so when we are called upon to glorify God, we are called upon to make His holiness visible to others. That's a very simple way of understanding it. And so I want to show you now practically from a story or a text in the scriptures how God described it when Moses said to him, now show me your glory. Would you turn in the Bible to Exodus chapter 33 for a few moments? I need to give a quick backdrop story to this because we want to make sure that we settle the question, what is the glory of God and how do I glorify him? Because that's what we want to know how to make sure we're doing And um, the story here, if you're not familiar with it, uh, quickly put, is um, uh, once again, Israel was in a very bad state. Once again, God's people were in a very bad situation. I I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record because it feels to me like I've been preaching for months to you and sort of starting out the sermon by saying, once again, Israel was in a very bad situation. Once again, the people of God were in a very bad state, but quite honestly, when we recognize or when we sort of compare our lives to the holiness and excellence of God compared to our lives, we regularly find ourselves in a very bad state. We regularly find ourselves not matching up to where we should be. But this is one of those times again when Israel was in a very bad state. And it's really tragic. And the tragedy, the particular tragedy of this, I think, is the timeline of how short a time it was from them experiencing the incredible, magnificent holiness and glory of God and and to where they have fallen to. Because we have in this particular particular scenario, um, the people of God had been rescued out of Egypt. You know the story. They've been rescued out of slavery and they've been magnificently rescued by God. He he demonstrated his holiness, his greatness through the ten plagues. And then he took them and he he parted the Red Sea and they walked walked in the dry land and, and escaped out of Egypt. And then we find them with a... Uh, they, they, it says in the text that they, they made for themselves a golden calf to worship. Now, we're thinking to ourselves, now how long a time span was it from this story of the magnificence of, uh, of God's work in their midst and them now making an idol? How long do you think the time span was? Any guesses? Any ideas? Some of you are biblical scholars and you already know. Well, since you're a very quiet audience and nobody wants to burst it out and, and appear to be unknowledgeable, 
three months. You know, when we look at the text, we think, oh, it's probably years and years of wandering around and all of this. It was three months. Now think of uh, a scenario here. Um, Megan, you were saved February 21st, I think you said. February, March, April, May. What that basically says is that, that after experiencing the spectacular greatness of God to save you, by May 21st, you are out there making yourself a golden calf idol. It, it's unconscionable how quickly that, that people can turn from, from the amazing nature and spectacular display and demonstration of a great God to turning their lives and turning to idols. So what's going on here? And, and we pick up the story where, where uh, God is... is uh, angered at the people, and uh, Moses is negotiating with God because God says he's going to wipe them out, and Moses negotiates with them and says, don't wipe them out, don't kill them, kill me, and, 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 and then God says, okay, fine, I won't kill them, and I'll, I'll, but I'll, I'll, I'm not going with you, I'll send an angel to go before you, and twice God says an angel, and then Moses says to him, no, God, not just an angel, you must come with us because if your presence doesn't come with us, what will differentiate us from all the peoples in the world? What will make us different? And so uh, Moses is negotiating back and forth with God, and so God says, okay, fine, I'll go with you because I love you, Moses. And then Moses gets up the courage to say, oh, uh, one more thing. Would you please show me your glory and that's where we pick up the text. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Then Moses says, now show me your glory. So here's what we're expecting, aren't we? I mean, isn't that kind of, isn't that kind of what, isn't that, didn't that go through your mind? I'm not alone here, am I? Don't leave me out here twisting. We're like expecting. And uh, God says, um, well, yeah, uh, Moses, um, check out my goodness. Check out my name. By the way, you can't see my face. It's like, what? That's it? That's your glory? That, that's, that's what you're going to reveal? It's almost like um, God says to Moses, my people will get back to your people and I'll let you know. Like, this is very satisfying at first. And then, and then you look at it and you realize, wait a second. Wait a minute. What are we seeing here, really? What is God saying? What is God teaching us? What is God revealing about his glory that we may be missing if we're expecting what I lamely tried to show you. The first thing that God says here is, in response to his question, I'll show you my goodness. Now, why did he say that to him? We have, um, we have a backdrop to this story, as I tried to catch you up, but there's some there's a flashbacks that we have to go back to to see what's going on here. And we realize that that in 
chapter 32, in verse 1, it says this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. There's something very important being told to us here, and it actually describes most of our lives and the struggle of our lives. They said, Moses is taking so long. We feel directionless. We haven't heard from God. It feels like we've been abandoned. We don't like our situation. It's not feeling good. I have been pastoring for a number of years, and one of the things I've discovered is so many Christians in the portrait gallery of their minds, in the place whereby an excellent portrait of God used to hang, now hangs a bunch of pictures that are very, very painful. And much of their lives are spent peering at that portrait gallery of disappointments and discouragement and pain and suffering, prolonged at times. Times when you look at the picture and say, oh God, how long is this going to be? Why is it so long? And so many people who claim to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ are stranded in the first part of the verse in Genesis 50, verse 20, which was the story when Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for harm. So many believers have stopped right there and have characterized their lives as discouraging so much harm, so much pain, so much struggle, so much frustration, so many disappointments. Where's God? And so we have this situation in our lives where we've come to believe that, that maybe God isn't good after all. And um, we become disappointed with him. And we're struggling with this whole concept of the glory of God. Where's the glory of God in my life? Where did it go? Why isn't it here? What happened to it? I want to share something with you if you haven't figured this out already. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world of wickedness and evil. You, you know that. You see it. And I want, to, I want you to know that partic- you, you as God's people, we as God's people, are a particular target of wicked and evil and hate and harm and all kinds of horrible things. We are a particular target The desire of the enemy of God is to dampen, if possible, to completely eclipse the glory of God in our lives. What we are called upon to believe as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in a world that's seeking to destroy us 
is that God is good. Why he said to Moses, the first thing in showing you my glory, I'm going to show you my goodness, is because in this world of hurt, I am good. In fact, Moses, in fact, Moses, what you need to know is that I'm in total control of this world. And while the harm and hurt is it being attempted to be heaped upon you every millisecond of your life, I'm the one who can take all of that and fashion it for your good. That's the second part of Genesis 50, verse 20. What you meant for harm, Joseph says to his brothers, God intended for good. That's a glorified God moment. That's the action plan we're talking about. How do you glorify God? In the midst of your pain and your struggle and your suffering, you recognize that God is in control and he is so good that he is going to take that harm and that hurt which he has permitted of all the possible harm and hurt that could come upon you. He has taken that harm and that hurt and he is going to use it to fashion something good in your life. That's an amazing truth. That's, a, that's an amazing reality to be able to live by. God never says you won't have hurt. He never says harm won't come near you. He never says that you won't have trouble or discouragement. What he does say is, I will never allow any harm, hurt, discouragement, or, or pain to come your way that I'm not going to turn into good. That's what he promises. And when we rest our hearts on that truth, the glimpse of God's glory, his goodness... We, in our lives, reflect the glory of God in ever-increasing glory to those who are watching our lives. So, in fact, pain and trouble will, will either eclipse the glory of God in your life or make it more stunning. It is totally dependent on what you believe to be true about God. Glory goes public. When the times in your life get furious and you still hold fast to the implications of Romans 8.28, which is, God works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus. You may get impatient. You may have trouble. In their case, in the case of these the people of God who had been saved for, 30 day, or for, for 90 days, saved for 90 days, their choice was to fashion a golden calf to solve their present situation when they had just seen the spectacular splendor of God. And you know what that says to me? We are so weak we are so pathetic. We are so easily crushed. We, are so, we so easily turn our backs on God. And so they made themselves a God who would replace what seemed to have disappeared in their lives. And that could be substances. If you find yourself feeling alone, you may compromise your beliefs. Maybe uh, honesty, you, you've come to the place where you felt like, you know what, honesty just doesn't pay. I'm going to live a different way. Well, then he said, um, 
not only my goodness, but my name. If fear and pain and impatience and will render God's glory virtually unrecognizable in your life, you will begin to convince yourself that other things have helped you in the past and you will turn back to those things. That's what they did. So they said to Aaron, come make us gods who will go before us. For this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. We, don't, we have no clue. So why don't you make us, some, why don't you make us gods? So we'll go, back to, we'll go back to a different way of living, the way the Egyptians lived. That's the danger. If you, if you allow yourself to be in a time of discouragement or maybe God's gone silent, maybe he's not moving as fast as you would like him to, and so you now have demeaned the goodness of God, it won't be long before you have de- are demeaning the greatness of God. And you will start to believe that maybe God isn't so great. Maybe God isn't able to deliver. Maybe what I used to think the Bible says doesn't really mean what I thought it meant. Maybe God can't really deliver on what he says in the Bible. So I'm going to go back to the things that I think maybe used to help me. And so he says, Moses, it's about my name. Now, when we're talking about the name of God, he's putting it over against a golden calf. He says, look at this thing, this golden calf. It's a human-made thing, inanimate, not alive, doesn't know the history of God's people, can't do anything, over against my name, Yahweh, the great God of the universe. I am who I am. I is who I is. I know it's not great grammar, but it's good theology. I am who I am. We, we, you know, the phrase that we're all, all using now all over the place, it is what it is, right? You use that, it is what it is, it is what it is, it is what it is. I is what I is, is what God says. I am the sovereign God, self-existent. I, uh, I, no one made me. Listen, listen, over against this calf, Moses, over against what these people did, I want you to get a grip, Moses, of the unconscionable sin this really is. In comparison to who I am, my name, what it means, the greatness of who I am, Moses, what I can do. I'm the one who can have, show mercy to who I want to show mercy or have compassion on who I want to comp- have compassion on. I'm the one who determines what happens in the universe. I'm the great God who knows the history of these people. I know every hair on their head. I'm the one who can help them. I'm the one who can direct them. My name, Moses, is to be revered. The greatness of God is is his glory. Moses, look at this. Understand this. The challenge of faith, faith is to hold fast to the invisible God based on who he is and not on what you see. Or you will build a golden calf yourself because you will start to believe God is not quite great. And if you've become unconvinced of the goodness of God and all of us are every day in, the da- in danger of that, we are one painful day away from being unconvinced of God's goodness. We are one sick day in bed away from being unconvinced of God's goodness. And if we allow ourselves to become unconvinced of God's goodness, we will soon become unconvinced of God's greatness. And not only will we be feeling sorry for ourselves because we feel like God isn't good, we will realize that we are in a hopeless situation because God isn't great. And if God isn't great, who's going to help me? Who's going to get you out of the situation you're in? Who's going to take care of you? Who's going to direct your life? 
Who's going to change discouragement to encouragement? And if you downsize God's greatness, here's what will happen every time. You will settle for gross misrepresentation of his glory and behavioral corruption will result. Exodus 32, verses 6 and 7. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry, which, by the way, was sexual debauchery. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. Here's what will happen. If you start to become unconvinced of the goodness of God in your life and you downsize the greatness of life, it is not long before you stop serving him, you stop praying, you stop showing up to church and you turn away from God. And you start to practice things in your life that you never, ever imagined you could do. We are so prone to blow it all up, to drift away. And maybe you don't understand fully what God thinks about that. But I want to show you from the text that it is... This high treason, this disloyalty to God is more significant than most of us ever think. It says in Exodus 32 verse 9 what God thinks about it. He says, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Listen, this is salvation relationship that we have with God is not about some little friendly uh, pal around thing with God. Isn't it cool to have God? You know, I, I, I mean, God are buddy buddies. Do you realize how angered God is when we ignore his holiness, when we turn away from him? God wants to kill us. This is not a little play kind of thing we've got going with God, playing church and all that kind of stuff. This is a serious matter before the holiness and spectacular brilliance and magnificence of God. In our arrogance and in our rebellion, we turn away from him. God wants to kill us. And Moses stepped in and said, no, God, don't kill them, kill me. Do we realize, do we have any idea what has happened in salvation? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stepped in front of us and said, Don't kill them, Father. Kill me. Let me take their sins upon me. Kill me, God. Let them go free. I'm the one who will step in front. Do we realize that every day of our lives because of Jesus Christ, he stands in between the wrath of God, our sinfulness. He stands between it and takes care of us as our mediator. If it were not for Jesus Christ and what he had done, we would be destroyed by a God who cannot look upon unholiness. This is about the greatness of God and coming to terms with it against the, 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 the ridiculous stooping of human nature to 
to turn to an idol. The challenge of faith is to hold fast to invisible God based on who he is and not what you can see. And there's a final point that needs to be made this morning. We are hopefully realizing, as Moses did, the absurdity of our rebellion and our arrogance and our dissatisfaction with the way God is handling his universe. The banality of our own competencies, or at least competencies we think, that could rewrite a better story for our lives. You know, as Moses uh, himself came and approached his brother Aaron and said, what were you thinking? Aaron said, well, we gathered up a bunch of gold and we threw it in a fire and pop, out came a golden calf. It's almost like, Moses, you won't believe what happened. The most amazing, miraculous God kind of thing happened. It's as if God made this golden calf, Moses. Moses wasn't having it, of course. And so God finally says to Moses, um, there's the third thing. My goodness, my greatness, my goodness, my, my um, name, thank you. I only wrote the sermon. I can't remember it. And the third is my face. But here's the deal, Moses. You can't see my face. Moses, you can't handle my glory. Moses, I could show you my glory, but I'd have to kill you. You know what I mean? That's what this basically comes down to. Moses, my glory, if God opened up the windows of heaven right now and revealed the fullness of his glory, do you know what would happen to us? Every cell, every synapse, every capillary, every mitochondria, everything that is within us would immediately seize up or vaporize because God has not made us to be able to handle the weightiness, the heaviness, the reality of the glory of God. This is why this, it's absurd for us to, to question God. Oh, what's God doing with my life now? I'm feeling so discouraged. He, he should be writing a better script of my life. Listen, if we could grasp the, uh, an understanding of the, the magnificence of the glory of God, the fact that, that he, has to, he has to protect us from it. He has to hide it from us. Otherwise, we'd be dead in an instant. So majestic, so awesome, so brilliant is the power and majesty and holiness and heaviness of God that were we to get one unprotected glimpse, every possible living structure of our life would be immediately and completely short-circuited. So he says to him, I'm going to show you my back. I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock and hide and just walk by. I'll just walk by you and you'll just see a little glimpse of me as I'm going by. Is that okay, Moses? Does that answer your question? 
yeah. Yeah, I want to live, so yeah, that answers my question. So what we have in the face of God is his presence. And the action plan is this. When God's glory is seen in our life, when our actions reveal the presence of God. And what is his presence as we conclude? Where the presence of the Lord is, there is rest. Where the presence of the Lord is, there is peace. Philippians chapter 4. Where the presence of the Lord is, there is freedom. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 17. Where the presence of the Lord is, there is joy and everlasting pleasures forever. Psalm 16 verse 11. So let me ask you a question. When you enter a room, do you bring with you the peace of God, the kindness of God, the freedom of God, the, 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 the uh, joy of God, the eternal pleasure of God, the peace of God. Because that's how the glory of God is seen by the people who see our lives. So the bottom line of all of this is that, that, that when we in the midst of our pain and suffering and struggle hold on to the goodness of God and everyone sees it in our lives, the hope of the goodness of God because God is always good, we have revealed the glory of God. We have glorified God. When it seems like there's a huge power outage in our lives and, and we hold on believing that God can help us and God will help us, we have revealed the glory of God. We have shown people the glory of God. We have glorified God. When, when um, everything within us sort of rises up to take control of our lives by ourselves and by our own strength, and we seek to, to live in ways that are displeasing to God, but God's presence and power and spirit challenges us and we change and we demonstrate the peace and rest and joy of God, we are bringing by our actions the glory of God. That's how people see the glory of God. And that's how God is changing us with ever-increasing glory which is revealed in us as we become more and more like Christ and as he works in us. And here's what Jesus said to his disciples in, in the prayer uh, to the Father in John 17, verse 22. He said, Father, give them the glory you gave me that they might be one just as you and I are one. So this glory, by the way, that we're talking about is given to us by Jesus at our salvation that we might practice unity one with the other and so glorify God and reveal to others the glory of God, what he's like, who he is. God confirms his promises by his presence, his presence in us confirms our uniqueness and that uniqueness reveals his glory to others how beautiful are the feet of those who bring 
good news, Romans 10, 17, or 10, 15. Our Father and our God, we have asked you to show us your glory. And you have answered us. You have told us in your word your glory is revealed by your goodness. And when we act according to your goodness, your glory is revealed in your greatness when we act according to our trust in your greatness. Your glory is revealed in your presence when we represent the presence of God, Lord, we realize that we are glorifying our God. And so, our God, this morning we just pray in a fresh way. You would help us to take and become practical in our lives, whether we eat or drink, to the glory of God. For Jesus' sake, amen. When we learn from the scriptures that the Creator purposed us to bring Him glory, there's no more important concept to get clear in our hearts and minds than that. It is how you find your reason for being. You exist, you and I, those who love the Lord, we exist to glorify God. So as we pause for prayer, and I, I just ask us to bow our heads, uh, perhaps this is a new moment or an important moment or a, one of those start over moments of asking the Lord to really make your life about the glory of God. I suggest as we think about this time of prayer and just this time of commitment to God that that we make a, a new pact with the Lord that when we are covered by badness, that we remain faithful and loyal to live out the goodness of God and believe that He is working goodness for our lives. When it seems that His power is somehow in an outage in my life that we hold on to the greatness of God and believe that I don't know God how you're going to do this but I do know you're great and I'll not turn back to other things I'll hold on to your greatness that way we'll glorify God and then when every urge of self-centeredness is fighting to be in the front stage of your life to say, Lord God, may your presence only exude out of me that I might glorify you and that onlookers might see how great you are. Oh God, may my life not be used to turn people away from God, but by glorifying him, turn people toward him. That's our purpose, oh God. And we rededicate ourselves to that mission today. In Jesus' name, and we all say, amen. Amen.